I next met with Dr. Stephen Edge, and to illustrate a number of critical teaching points, he presented several patients from his practice, beginning with a 45-year-old woman with a prior history of Hodgkin lymphoma. This is a woman who had mantle radiation therapy for Hodgkin's disease in her early 20s and has been doing extremely well and has been, of course, told she's at high risk for breast cancer and underwent uh, screening mammography and has been advised to undergo screening MRI on an annual basis on the basis of her risk. And the screening MRI this year showed a tiny focus of enhancement for which breast biopsy was warranted. The mammogram was negative. She had no symptoms. Her physical examination was negative. This really simply a screening detected lesion. And she had a core biopsy which showed low to intermediate grade DCIS. There was a papillary lesion there. There was scattered ADH. The focus of DCI had measured two millimeters in size. And I put a direct quote from the pathology report that the possible differential diagnosis includes ADH involving a papilloma. The presence of considerable amount of intermediate nuclei makes the diagnosis of DCIS favored. Hmm. So how did you think it through? Well, you know, this is an increasing issue is that you just leave the Hodgkin's disease out of this. This is a problem we're seeing more and more, the very minimal DCIS and the pathologist making the distinction between DCIS and atypical hyperplasia. So this is something a surgeon is faced with on a not infrequent basis. And, you know, the knee jerk has been, and the guidelines actually call for treating DCIS as cancer. And therefore, this diagnosis of two millimeters of DCIS will frequently trigger someone being treated with excision radiation therapy, and potentially some women will be treated with mastectomy. So this is an area where there's a lot of uncertainty around the country and where we know that we have you know, dramatically increased the number of women with DCIS through the screening examinations we're doing. And screening MRI has only added to that, has only added to the numbers of women who are having these kind of findings. And the question is, is this really cancer? Is it over-treatment? And should we even be using the word cancer? And just in the last year, there's been a lot of turmoil around these. Laura Esserman's group, sponsored by the NCI, specifically is trying to address that we should take the word carcinoma or cancer away from these lesions and of these high-risk lesions. And Shelley Wang, who used to be with Laura at UCSF, who is now at Duke, actually tried to do studies of patients to try to say, if we present patients with different scenarios in a survey study, and if you use the word cancer, those patients are more likely to want aggressive treatment. And if you use the word high-risk lesion, a lesion that may lead a little higher chance if you're developing a cancer sometime in the future, they are much less likely to receive this. And Shelley actually is looking to start a study through the Alliance, which I must admit I can't cite the exact design of the study, but is really going to look at non-operative management for limited DCIS. They probably only need about, what, 100,000 patients? No, I don't <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe not, because if you see, of course, if you see as many as many of the doomsday sayers would suggest is that you'll see a very high frequency of those people progressing in relatively short order. So if that's the case, then you would have to stop the study. What data do we have from trials or other sources that addresses the question of the long-term outcomes in patients like this? Well, we have data from observation as well as trials of radiation therapy and no radiation therapy that the extent of treatment has no impact on survival. 
But what about, you know, just the prognosis of someone with this type of presentation, you know, the likelihood of, you know, recurrence or metastatic disease based on different types of therapies? Do we have any data on that? Well, we have data that a certain percentage of these women will have at least some minimal invasive cancer identified in the surgical specimen. So if this woman goes on to have excision, you will find a certain proportion of them will have invasive cancer. What proportion? Probably 10 to 15%. But let's actually not take this woman. Let's take someone who's got a 8 millimeter focus of DCIS. Probably 15 to 20% of those women will at least have microscopic invasion. So I assume this was ER positive? Yeah. I'm very curious to know what you did. Well, we now then have to throw in the fact, of course, that she is had mantle radiation therapy. The risk of women who had mantle radiation therapy goes up until about 20 years after their treatment, and then it stays up. It does not drop. Those women will have this risk of breast cancer that will remain with them throughout their life. So she's in her mid-40s and will have this risk for the rest of her life. So this is actually someone where if she wanted to proceed with very aggressive therapy saying, I've all likelihood cured of my first cancer, and I don't want to get another one, and I've got a 20 or 30% chance at this point of getting an invasive cancer in the next 20 years, I want to have prophylactic mastectomies. This is actually a situation where I actually think you'd have a hard time really arguing. But on the other hand, if she is not in that mindset, this is someone where I think you could potentially take a very less aggressive approach and continue to follow her with screening MRIs. My personal advice in this situation, because this was an MRI-detected lesion only, there were no calcifications seen on the mammogram, MRI may or may not adequately identify or adequately define the size of the area of involvement or the extent of involvement with DCIS, that I would advise her at the least to undergo an excision of the area of the biopsy and see what's there. Is there extensive DCIS? Sometimes you will do these excisions and you will see DCIS extending from one side of the excision to the other. Very extensive disease. Sometimes you will do this excision and you will find nothing. You will find only benign breast changes plus the site of the biopsy. So this lady is being followed right now? Well, she underwent excision and the excision showed no further DCIS. Whenever you find that, I would caution surgeons to go back and double check that they are very confident that they excise the area of concern, that the clip that had been placed at the time of the biopsy is in the right spot, that they excise the clip, and that they saw the biopsy site pathologically. If you're confident that you found the lesion, then this is someone where I would strongly consider simply following her. And in fact, after talking with us and talking with her, she actually went to where she got her Hodgkin's disease treatment, which was actually her physician had moved to another major cancer center. And after a consultation, she has elected to follow with endocrine therapy only. So she's going to take tamoxifen, but she's doing follow-up only. She is willing to take the chance that she'll develop something in the future and will have to have a breast cancer treated in the future. Listening to this case, because this issue of radiation therapy and limited-stage Hodgkin lymphoma is something that we've been talking about all the time the last couple of years in our heme programs. There have been a couple of papers that have come out, and people are really now, particularly obviously in women, trying to figure out ways to avoid 
radiation therapy. But you're right. You know, there's a lot of people who've already been treated, like this lady, mm -hmm. before it was even a thought. And I mean, I don't know how many, maybe there aren't that many. I don't even know how many people might be out there like that. But I could envision it's not a tiny number of people. And are there guidelines in terms of either endocrine prevention or prophylactic mastectomy in patients who've had radiation therapy for Hodgkin lymphoma? Actually, the frequency of this is pretty low. Back in the you know late 1990s and early 2000s, we saw a lot more of this, and that population has aged. And of course, I guess many of the people who might have gotten breast cancer have done it or have gotten it. But I think many of us have seen fewer of these women over the last number of years. And in fact, I saw a woman with this a couple of years ago. I went back and I haven't seen a person for three or four years, despite the very busy breast cancer practice I had at the time. And, you know, the recent data clearly shows that their risk goes up and stays up for the rest of their life. It doesn't peak and then drop. So there are women out there. Surgeons should know about this. And a woman I treated two years ago, she went to a plastic surgeon in Buffalo who told her that Dr. Edge was crazy, that radiation therapy had no impact on her risk of breast hmm. cancer. Needless to say, I educated that plastic surgeon, but surgeons need to be aware of this, and they won't have seen this very often, and they need to step back and do some reading when they see one of these patients. But when you, I mean, think about this lady, I mean, you said, quote, her risk, lifetime risk might be 20 to 30 percent of breast cancer? Sure. So that sounds like numbers that would get a lot of people to think about prophylactic mastectomy, as you mentioned. Absolutely. But, I mean, it seems like there ought to be some easy method for a surgeon when they see a patient like that, first of all, to figure out what their risk is, because mm -hmm. maybe it depends on the kind of radiation or their age. I don't know what the data said, but, I mean, putting it all together, you've got a woman in front of you with a 25, 30% chance of breast cancer. That kind of almost is up there in BRCA world where people get mastectomies all the time. Right. Not quite BRCA world, but... Yeah, no, half of it maybe or a third of it. Certainly, as I said earlier, if this woman was of the mindset that one could not argue with bilateral prophylactic mastectomy for her. But she was not of the mindset. She really didn't want to, and she understands this. I mean, most likely, right. if she develops an invasive cancer, most likely it will be detected at a very early stage based on her undergoing annual MRI and mammography screening. Right. Most likely it will be effectively treated. So most likely she's not increasing her risk of premature death by taking this course of action. Hmm. All right. Let's talk about this 58-year-old lady. This is a case that brings up an important issue that's been talked about an awful lot over the last 15 years since the first registry-based study. And this is a woman who had a three-centimeter cancer in the breast, and she underwent scanning studies, has bone metastases confirmed by a biopsy, so she has metastases at the time of diagnosis. And after seeing a medical oncologist and a surgeon, and what was presented to me was that no one really took a stand on this. The medical oncologist didn't really have anything in their notes in this regard, but the woman underwent bilateral mastectomy for a unilateral cancer in the setting of metastatic disease. And it's just an area that I think that surgeons need to refine their understanding of this issue. There were registry studies, the first coming from the National Cancer Database, oh, like 12 or 14 years ago, showing that women who had primary surgery for the cancer in the setting of metastatic disease at diagnosis, a situation that occurs in about 3 or 4% of women with breast cancer, 
that those women who had surgery had longer survival than women who did not have surgery with metastatic disease. And there have been a number of registry-based studies that have shown the same thing. And people have tried to adjust for factors of comorbidity or extent of disease, and all of those studies have shown the same finding. There have been a number of other groups, including our group at the NCCN using the Breast Cancer Outcomes Database, that looked very carefully at a detailed analysis of the extent of disease and the mode of diagnosis and other factors about the patient and actually showed that when you control for those factors that there is no difference in survival. And if you look at the registry studies, actually, 50% of the women who had metastatic disease at primary diagnosis underwent surgery. And to me, that's always been a big red flag because this was in a time frame 1980s and 90s, where clearly the standard was if you presented with metastases, you did not undergo immediate surgery because your survival was going to be dictated by your primary cancer. So in fact, since the registries did not account for when the metastatic disease was diagnosed, what a lot of subsequent series have showed is that the women who undergo surgery are frequently women who have surgery, then they have positive nodes, and they're identified as having metastatic disease because they have scans done after surgery. So they had surgery. That's a different patient population than the people who present with symptomatic metastases. And also, I mean, I guess it's kind of different than people who get diagnosed before surgery with METs. Right, exactly. When you can sort of... Somebody's got extensive nodal disease on clinical examination, or they've got inflammatory cancer, or they've got a large locally advanced cancer, and you do scanning studies and you find they've got metastases, that's a different population of people than people who have more limited disease, they undergo surgery, and then somebody decides to do scanning studies. So this has been an area of a lot of discussion and controversy in the last few years, and it came up a couple of times talking with other speakers in this program. At San Antonio, we saw two phase three trials, one from India and the other from Turkey, showing no benefit for surgery and metastatic disease. What's your take on where we are today with this concept? Those studies were relatively small, but they showed no difference in outcome. There is a study in the United States that Seema Khan was the person at Northwestern is the woman who did that first registry-based study, and to Seema's enormous credit, she then immediately started working with the cooperative groups to develop a trial where they would address this question in a randomized fashion. So it's Seema's fault that we have this registry data in the first place, and it's to Seema's enormous credit that she immediately started doing the work to do a trial, and it took many, many years for that trial to be activated. But I understand the trial has a fair number of patients on it. It's a difficult trial to get women to join. and I would imagine so. It's a difficult trial to find women who are eligible for, because in fact, women with metastatic disease at presentation only make up about 3 or 4% of all the people you see with breast cancer. So every center is going to have a very limited number of women who might be eligible, and many of those women present with very advanced disease, and they're not surgical candidates up front. So they need to receive upfront systemic therapy. So it's a limited number of people who are eligible for that study. Outside of this study, I think the preponderance of data is supporting that it is likely that it will not show any improvement in outcome for these women. And I actually encourage them not to have a local therapy unless they develop local progression. I mean, a few of them, they will have a response with systemic disease. They'll be doing well and the local disease will start to progress and then you do local therapy. Yeah, you know, Dr. Khan was the discussant at San Antonio, those two negative trials. And one of the things that she brought out that, I don't know, I just kind of hadn't thought about before is the difference, as you were sort of alluding to, in the patient who has a smaller primary, you're not concerned about local control versus situations where, you know, maybe there's not a local control problem now, but you're concerned, you know, as you mentioned, maybe they progress. 
So I guess the real question is, if there's no local control thing, is there any point in doing this? And it sounds like you and I think most surgeons right now are not doing it. One other postscript, I'm sure every person listening to this case was also thinking, well, you know, it's one thing if you, let's say, take the primary out in the face of bone mets, but this patient had bilateral mastectomies. Right. Somebody, and this was presented to me, so I don't know all the circumstances, but I'm conjecturing that somebody is really overinterpreting these data. And I've seen this many, many times as somebody overinterprets data, and then the woman, with some degree of misinformation, overinterprets that and then says, I want bilateral mastectomy. And it sort of snowballs on itself, and nobody puts the brakes on. So this woman, and again, this is some conjecture on my part, but this woman has undergone bilateral mastectomy that she really doesn't need and will likely have no impact on her long-term outcome. And if she really, in this kind of situation, if that woman really knows the facts, it's not going to provide her reassurance or comfort. And, you know, unfortunately, even though all the new and exciting tools in breast cancer, although a lot of them are HER2 positive, she's HER2 negative, Metastatic disease is not good. You know, this lady's looking at a limited life expectancy, I would think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, she may live many years. And I had a woman who presented to me with miliary disease in the lungs. She wouldn't go see the medical oncologist. She said, just give me that tamoxifen. The disease disappeared in her lungs. Five years later, the local disease started to progress. We did a mastectomy. And 10 years after that, she started to progress with her distant disease. Go figure, you wow. know? You know, go figure. You, we all have these individual cases, but the majority of women with metastatic disease, and even in this day with all the wonderful drugs we have for HER2-positive disease, still the majority of those women will fairly soon progress and ultimately do poorly. But, I mean, it's a great new time we're in, but unfortunately, one has to temper that. And, of course, it does bring, you know, you can go from this case and go into the whole area of prophylactic mastectomy in general, which has seen a real resurgence in interest with the markedly higher rates of prophylactic mastectomy being done. And, again, one has to question the value of those treatments. So, so it's interesting that for this interview, you put together a clinical scenario for us to discuss related to the patient with negative sentinel nodes intraoperatively but positive on permanent section. And Terry Mamanos, who's also on the same audio program, chose the same issue and presented a case with that. And he also brought up another issue you wanted to discuss, which is margins. So I'm going to let our listeners compare notes about what you and Terry have to say here. Let's start with this sentinel node scenario. A 50-year-old woman who's got a family history of breast cancer and has a clinical T1C N0M0 cancer, and she decides on mastectomy and has a mastectomy with sentinel node biopsy with an intraoperative interpretation, which is negative. But by H&E, two lymph nodes have metastases, and the largest size of the metastasis is 2.5 millimeters. So it's a real met. It's not a micromet. It's not isolated tumor cells, and the question is whether the woman should undergo axillary lymph node dissection. And there are very limited data. The standard has been to do axillary lymph node dissection. The ACASOG Z11 trial, which we have all pretty much adopted for women with limited nodal metastases who are treated with breast-conserving surgery, we've pretty much all adopted that and are now omitting actually no dissection. So if this woman had been treated with breast-conserving surgery and she was undergoing appropriate systemic therapy and whole breast radiation therapy, we would omit axillary lymph node dissection. But we're still going around and around as to whether that should be extrapolated to women with mastectomy. There's one trial that included women with mastectomy, but only included micrometastasis. It was an Italian study, as I recall, that looked at the same question about 
think 15% of the women had mastectomy, so it certainly was not powered to ask the question of mastectomy, but it showed no difference and confirmed the findings of the Z11 trial. So it's an area of a lot of debate. The debate will then come around because she now has two positive lymph nodes. She's relatively young. Should she receive radiation therapy to the chest wall after her mastectomy because she had two positive nodes? And if she does, should she receive extended field radiation therapy to include the nodes? If she does that, does she really need actually node dissection? Can you comment on how often you see this kind of scenario where the sentinel nodes are negative, but you have positive nodes? 15% of the time. Interoperative evaluation of sentinel nodes has a substantial rate of not identifying small metastases, probably 15% of the time. With lobular cancer, it will be much higher because the small lobular cells resemble lymphocytes. They're very hard to define on frozen section. I'm kind of curious. I see you're getting involved with the huge issue of quality of cancer care, and I was wondering what your take is right now on the quality of surgical care being delivered to patients with breast cancer. I don't think it really matters in terms of the technical issues of the surgery, whether you're in an academic center or a community center. I mean, you know, the problem I see with breast surgery is the surgeon who truly dabbles in breast surgery. I would hasten to add that I am not of the mind that one must do 100% breast surgery or be breast surgery fellowship trained to be a breast surgeon. There are many, many communities in our country where the general surgeon in that community does a substantial amount of breast cancer, but also is doing the gallbladders and the colons and the trauma surgery that comes in. And in fact, if that person wasn't in that town, people would die after car accidents and would not have their colon cancers properly treated, and in fact, would not have their breast cancers treated. Many general surgeons do a really excellent job of treating breast cancer. You do not have to spend 100% of your time treating breast cancer to be an excellent breast cancer surgeon. So again, Terry brought up the issue of margins and the big JCO paper from ASCO, SSO, and ASTRO on margins. What's your take on this? Well, the issue really dates back to the very first use of breast-conserving surgery in the 1970s, where it was felt that you should remove the tumor and have a negative margin. And the negative margin that was defined by the NSABP was to paint the surface of the resection specimen with ink. And you can, of course, see that line of ink microscopically. And if the ink was actually not physically on a tumor cell, no ink on tumor, that that was a negative margin. Whereas if there were tumor cells that actually had ink on them, that was a positive margin. And all of the data that was done through the NSABP used the no ink on tumor definition. But through the years, people interpreted negative margins to mean a much wider margin. If you sort of cross over into DCIS, Mel Silverstein showed that local failure rates in DCIS were substantially lower if you had a very wide margin, of a margin of a centimeter or more. Obtaining a margin of a centimeter or more around a tumor remarks moving a very large section of breast tissue, which may impact on the long-term outcome of the lumpectomy. So there has been very little controlled trial data on the width of the margin that's required. There is no actual consensus on how a margin should be evaluated. The NSABP standard of painting the surface of the specimen with ink is the technique used probably by most people around the world. But there have been other techniques, such as the second most widely used is to complete your excision 
with no attempt to get wide margins, and then to take a shave of each of the walls of the biopsy cavity, superior, inferior, medial, lateral, posterior, anterior, if there's any tissue to get, and send those so-called shave margins for analysis and consider it at a positive margin if there's any tumor in that shave margin. And there's proponents of that, that you have better local control or you have better analysis of your margins. It's very difficult to define whether either one improves outcome over the other. There have been people who have done touch prep cytology of margins. You take the tumor, the lumpectomy specimen, and actually roll the specimen on a microscope slide and then do essentially uh, papillonical smears on those staining on those slides and look for tumor cells by touch prep. The consensus over the last decade has been that you want to achieve a two or three millimeter margin, and many people would categorize a close margin as one that's less than two millimeters and a negative margin as something that's more than two millimeters. But the only data to really support that are retrospective series with many different techniques for evaluating margins, many different sampling techniques, and there's no real data to demonstrate that margins wider than no ink on tumor provide a lower risk of local failure than no ink on tumor as originally described by the NSABP. So in many ways, this SSO guideline has now taken that and looked objectively at this. And it's almost like they're the little boy saying the emperor is not wearing any clothes. Look, there is no real advantage of getting wider margins. Now, that makes some surgeons uncomfortable because we've all been trained. We've all spent hours and hours in tumor boards asking the pathologist to show us exactly where the ink is, but there really is no advantage to anything less than no ink on tumor. But the significance of this is, is that the flip side is that by requiring wider margins, many of us have been doing reoperation on the breast so that a woman who has breast-conserving surgery who has close margins, or if they have microscopically positive margins, undergoes a second operation to re-excise tissue. That re-excision is a second trip to the operating room. That second trip to the operating room costs, oh, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars by the time you put in the surgeon's fees and the operating room fees. And the use of re-excision varies, but maybe as high as 40% in many settings. If people have had a surgical excision as their first biopsy, the re-excision rate would be 60 or 70 or 80%. We actually had data from the NCCN database that we presented at San Antonio, oh boy, seven or eight years ago, that showed that if there was a surgical excision done as the first biopsy, the re-excision rate bordered on 100%. And that's a lot of extra surgery. So there's a lot of, separately from this guideline, there's been a number of papers, including one by Larry McCahill in JAMA about two years ago, demonstrating these widely varied rates of re-excision and the problems associated with that. In fact, many people have suggested that measuring the frequency with which you do re-excision should be a quality measure in breast cancer treatment. So this guideline dovetails nicely with that, that if you define negative margins as no ink on tumor, that you really will decrease the requirement for re-excision and you won't have any impact on outcome. So a long-winded answer to your question. And the DCIS, which really wasn't covered by that, is another question, and many surgeons are very uncomfortable with this. And it's going to be interesting to see the extent to which this guideline is adopted by providers around the country. Hopefully this guideline will cause surgeons to really rethink this requirement. They must re-excise all of these women. And of course, re-excision is okay, 
you know, in, in reality, it's not that big a deal. It's a 20-minute operation. It is an operation. The cosmetic outcome isn't as good. But it also will lead to mastectomy in some cases because re-excising will lead to a cosmetic deformity. Or you'll find this microscopic dot of cancer in the re-excision, and then you'll end up going on to a mastectomy. Well, that's why we get radiation therapy. We know that some of these women have those microscopic dots of cancer beyond the original excision. That's why we give radiation. And people know that, but what happens is the whole thing snowballs, and somebody starts giving misinformation, and the woman gets really concerned, and they end up getting a lot of surgery they really don't need. So I see you've been involved with a number of papers via your prior work with the NCCN looking at the use of adjuvant chemotherapy in clinical practice and how this has been affected by the use of genomic assays in the United States, particularly the 21 gene recurrence score. Any comment on your macro perspective on this? I think this era of personalizing therapy is really benefiting patients in many ways. I mean, fewer women are getting chemotherapy. A large number of women now receive endocrine therapy alone. A close relative of mine went through this last summer, an oncotype score of 21 or 22, and, you know, after reviewing the data, decided only to do endocrine therapy and avoided chemotherapy. She's in her mid-60s, and I think a lot of women in this country are now avoiding chemotherapy that does not benefit them. The real interesting things are going to come when we start getting better data on women with positive nodes. You know, the suggestive data, of course, from SWOG and others, the retrospective data is that it will be predictive of outcome and chemotherapy benefit in women with node-positive cancer. I'm seeing it actually a lot in our community here. Something I was a bit surprised in when I came here is how it has been so rapidly adopted outside of the trial to use oncotype testing for node-positive breast cancer. So let's spend the rest of our time with this intriguing issue of quality. Mm-hmm. If you had to pick out your top five or top 10 list of quality issues in terms of breast cancer and surgeons, what would the top ones be that, you know, if you were the czar here, you'd address first? In terms of surgeons, the first would be appropriate counseling regarding mastectomies. And that frequently means multidisciplinary counseling. What we've seen in the data is that the variation in the use of mastectomy versus breast-conserving surgery and the variation in the increasing use of prophylactic surgery that probably have no impact on outcome is one where I would want to address from a surgical standpoint. The others would be the issue of appropriate use of biopsy and re-excision, one where we're seeing a lot of unnecessary surgery being done. Another would be the appropriate use of neoadjuvant therapy, the appropriate involvement of multidistrict care. Actually, there's a task force I'm on with ASCO that was started again by Mike Hassett to look at measures of quality that can address areas of care coordination. Any quality issues related to neoadjuvant therapy? I would point out that one of the real problems I've had in breast surgical practice are the people who are treated with neoadjuvant therapy without a surgical consultation. And then they're the... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, I... That's the the reverse situation. This is not uncommon. And... Really? Oh, yeah. It's surprising. And it creates horrible problems because, you know, some of these people won't respond well. And the people I see who got referred to me when I was at Roswell Park are the people in the community who've had this done and they're not responding. And then they're in real trouble. 
And well, now, are you talking about people with locally advanced disease? We're talking about people with all sorts, with various stages of disease, yes, but they get in trouble. So the measure says that they should see the multidisciplinary team. It doesn't say they have to see a medical oncologist. If the patient sees the medical oncologist first, that person should be referred to see the surgeon as well and the radiation oncologist. The team should be involved because it really is team. It's not that the surgeon should always have to remember to send the person to the medical oncologist. That's the usual way it works, but it should also work in reverse. So no, you're absolutely right. I'm yeah. surprised to know that. Yeah, I've actually seen the circumstance with smaller tumors where the medical oncologist treated with neoadjuvant therapy, they have a complete clinical response, and you can't hmm. find the tumor, and you don't know where it is, and nobody remembered. Wow. Oh, nobody remembered. Oh, yeah, you're supposed to leave a clip in the tumor bed. Wow. No clip in the tumor yes. bed. You don't know where the tumor is. I have personally, once or twice, done a mastectomy because the person wasn't referred to the surgeon before they started neoadjuvant therapy, and they had a complete clinical response. We didn't know where to do the lumpectomy. Wow. Interesting. So, so quality is really just measuring, finding a way to assess how people are being treated. And then the mantra I like to think is help the doctor and help the patient. Provide the doctor with information that they'll understand what's happening with their practice and how they can improve the care they're providing. Actually, another really nice tool we developed at the Commission on Cancer, which is really taking off nationally, is called the Rapid Quality Reporting System, where cancer registry data are collected within a few weeks or a couple of months of the time of diagnosis. And then a time clock starts ticking. So let's take the woman where the quality measure for a woman with hormone receptor negative cancer, this is a very old quality measure now, the quality measure says that that woman should start chemotherapy within four months of diagnosis. Now, most women will, but a few people fall through the cracks, and particularly disadvantaged populations, people who don't have resources, people in racial and ethnic minority groups potentially where there's some distrust of the health system, they tend to fall through the cracks. There's a nice literature on this, but it cuts across all racial and socioeconomic divides, but it may well more affect those people who have trouble getting access to care. So if the tumor registry now is tracking that person, if at four months the registry hasn't been told this woman has started chemotherapy, they go, Dr. Love, your patient was diagnosed four months ago, and we don't have a report that she started 